0: The theme that I would like to offer some reflections on this evening is solitude and the love of solitude. To start with a poem by Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solitaries, and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upwards. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light. Uh, The path of awakening, uh, the path of freedom, I think, has always been deeply rooted in a love of solitude and a love of aloneness a quality of aloneness in which we're really fully at peace with ourselves, with others, with the world. But the path of awakening and freedom, it perhaps seems paradoxical, is equally rooted in a profound sense of interconnectedness. We are relational beings. We're also in very real ways alone. The Buddha consistently encouraged students to take their seats beneath a tree in an empty hut and establish themselves in mindfulness and in solitude. And yet in his teaching, he so equally praised community, establishing sangha, um, one of the triple gems, one of the pillars of the path, and a place where we also seek refuge. Each of us clearly has a personal story that is unique to us. The stories of our past, the many experiences in our lives that have played a part in forming who we are just now. The story of our bodies, the story of our hearts, our dreams, our hopes, our memories of hurt, our longings, our fears. This is all part of our individual, our some way unique story. And I don't think this is a teaching that's really ever asked us to abandon that story, but much more has invited us to understand it, that this is the classroom our awakening, the classroom of compassion, the place where we actually learn the lessons of peacemaking. Yet, I think as we are here together, we listen to one another, it becomes so very clear the ways in which our personal story lives within a universal story. And it is that That living within the universal story that's also the ground of empathy, of compassion, of connectedness that truly places us within the family of all beings. And what is that universal story and personal story? Being born, all of us will change, we will age, we will die. We share our mortality. We share, all of us, in our capacity to know sadness in the face of loss, to know fear in the face of uncertainty, to know anxiety when we bump into the innately unpredictable, uncertain nature of a life that's ungraspable, that will never stand still, We also share, I think, in our longings for safety, for love, for acceptance. And we also know that the deepest lessons of our lives, the transformative lessons of our lives, that we learn within ourselves and in very real ways. We learn these lessons alone. I mean, in our lives and at our deaths, we may be fortunate to be surrounded by those who care for us and love us. Yet it's only really us who can make peace with our living and with our dying. It's really only we alone who can understand the, the ways of our own hearts and minds and that can bring the, the sincerity and the effort and the commitment that really show us through our own experience, the ways to, to bring struggle and torment to an end. In very real ways, we, it's only we alone who, who learn the very genuine lessons of, of contentment and freedom. We have and can have many friends on the path, and yet you're probably all aware, as you are here in this retreat, how important it is to embrace our aloneness, to learn to be at peace with ourselves, to learn what it means to be free inwardly, and to really bring to an end all sense of lack, all sense of insufficiency. And in that freedom, perhaps that is the very freedom the freedom from the torment of lack and insufficiency. Perhaps it's that very freedom that really opens the door to a genuine sense of community, a way in which we can find freedom within relatedness. And solitude is something in this path that we are invited to learn to love. And in my sense, is that it's that love of solitude and ease within aloneness that may be the greatest manifestation of maturity and freedom as a human being. Paul Tillich once wrote, he says, our language has wisely sensed the two sides of being alone, It has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it has created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. Now in in her poem, Mary Oliver, perhaps, you know, sounds strange, speaks of the Buddha looking into the faces of a frightened crowd and it's true from the stories at least that there are many who somehow thought this shouldn't be happening you know and the buddha looked at those who thought it shouldn't be happening and says you know what have i taught you you know my entire life what have i taught you and yet there's an understandable fear in the face of loss uh, in the face of loss Perhaps a Buddha recognized the existential anxiety that can so govern our hearts and our lives. You know, uh, there was a Christian mystic who once described anxiety as the mood of ignorance. Anxiety has being the mood of confusion, of not knowing things as they actually are. And through the eyes, of insufficiency. And through the eyes of a sense of lack, I think solitude does look like loneliness. And solitude through the eyes of a feeling of insufficiency looks as a way of being bereft, of not knowing who we are, and not more painfully, not having any way to temper the, the kind of compulsions of the the hungry ghost inwardly that is so conditioned and so trained to look outwardly to the world, to look outwardly to other people, to looking for reassurance, the reassurance that tells us, you know, we're lovable, we're okay, we're acceptable, we're worthy, we're even someone. And solitude in the sense, I think, requires such a lot of courage, the the courage to enter into that space of uncertainty, to enter into that space of not knowing, and and to turn towards it, and and to turn towards ourselves, to enter what initially may feel like a desert, or may feel like a forest fire or a storm, and, and to learn how to be still and to explore this landscape of loneliness, of insufficiency, of anxiety. There's a poem, it says, uh, not a poem, a piece. It says, to walk a path of awakening, we must first find the courage to turn towards ourselves. Enter what feels like a desert of loneliness.'" Insufficiency and see it change through kindness and through understanding into a garden of solitude. Some time ago, I was uh, at a meeting in a university, you know, obviously in the students' cafeteria. And I, and I think I, I observed, I think, what's become something of a, a cultural ritual. You know, where all of the students coming in for lunch to to hang out with friends, and and uh, 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 oh, I think pretty uniformly, the first thing everybody did was take out their phone and put it on the table in front of them. Mm-hmm. And, and just observing this cultural ritual, you know, a little conversation, look down, check the phone, you know, the little conversation, look down, check the phone, a little conversation, look down, check the phone. And I sort of had this sense of it being kind of the worst of all worlds. <laughs> like, like not being able to be together fully and yet being afraid of, of being alone and and, of course, I know we live in a culture that tends to pathologize everything. But this also now has a name, a, a diagnosis. It's, it's called FOMO. And FOMO means the fear of missing out. And it's a strange term, but it's, it's a very pressing one, isn't it? The fear of missing out. Hmm? Now, in a silent retreat, of course, we, we are really offered this remarkable opportunity to quite honestly explore our own relationship to solitude. And and to have a to feel our way into what it means to befriend that solitude. To to taste because it's really a taste of what it is to be unconditionally present with ourselves and for ourselves. It's also a taste of what it is to be together with all of these women and yet not lose ourselves. What it is to be deeply established in in aloneness and yet together with others. This is a lesson, I think, not just for retreats. This is a lesson for our lives, because we see really how prone we actually are to, to measure and judge ourselves through the medium of how we imagine other people are judging and measuring us. Now, of course, in our lives, we, we do have that real experience of people judging and measuring us we have the real experience of how words of affection and praise and warmth make us feel acceptable and lovable and worthy and the ways in which words of blame and criticism and and coldness kind of shape a sense of self of being someone who is who is unacceptable and inadequate and what happens in a retreat, of course, silence is really a renunciation of that medium. So we don't have that, those voices coming from outside of good and bad, telling us who we are. And so we're left with our own voices you know, of blame and praise, of judgment or affection. And we become so quickly and acutely aware of what we are not at peace with inwardly. Those are the return visitors. The the Buddha refers to this, this psychological realm of the experience of indebtedness. And when he speaks about indebtedness in this sense, he's obviously not talking about you know financial debt he's talking about emotional and psychological indebtedness the, the the thoughts that don't go away but we also sense our reaction to this what what our reaction is to to not being at peace with ourselves our reaction to not being at ease in solitude and our primary reaction, of course, is abandonment. Abandonment expresses itself in, in our anxiety about solitude, but more our discomfort about what is happening in that solitude. And I think it's a really useful investigation to begin to trace our own particular patterns, of abandonment, of disconnection, of departure. You know, for some, it's distractedness. You know, we keep ourselves busy. Keep ourselves busy. And even in this environment, I am endlessly astonished at the ways (laughs) we can just keep going, you know, and just keep ourselves busy. Our pattern of abandonment may be numbness. We just check out. Our pattern of abandonment may be around rehearsal and planning. And of course, you know, what well, we actually really see that, that solitude solitude is something where we're really invited, actually, to learn to love non-distractedness. Where we're asked to really love wakefulness and awareness, knowing this is actually the place where we discover the joy of a unified heart, body, mind, and present moment. A solitude really is a very, I think it's a very multi-spectrum word and quality but the heart of it really lies in actually having a certain inner affection for our own being. Its heart actually lies in in that capacity to to be a friend to ourselves and to befriend ourselves, both the lovely and the unlovely. It is... It, it's so interesting for me. I've really been thinking a lot about orientations in practice. You know, meditation is a word early translators imported from Christian traditions. It's good to know that they also imported the word mindfulness. Okay, so the the word actually in Pali, bhavana, is cultivation. To, to bring into being. So we're cultivating here. That's what we're doing. And I think of orientations in practice. And, um, you know, there's one way of orienting ourselves in practice where we're just working on stuff. And that's why I said this morning, and you know, I'm trying to erase this this word from my meditative vocabulary. I mean, it's, it's particularly Western, I have to say, you know, that we're working on things. You know, we just can't stop working on things, you know. So we're trained to work on things, you know. But often when you think about it, one of the orientations of practice is, is to work on the difficult, almost like, a, you know, a program. You know, and, and, you know, I remember being so struck recently, someone said to me on retreat, this is the first retreat I've ever done. This is someone who's been practicing for like 20 years. The first retreat I've ever done where I'm not working on an issue. And I thought, that's astonishing. You know, how exhausting. How exhausting. Because it never runs out is it's really the core problem. I mean, issues don't run out. You know, if we tend to see ourselves in terms of issues, it doesn't end. So one orientation in practice is this kind of chipping away at the coal face. You know? And I have to say, the Buddha was not really big on this. <laughs> you know, and there's that kind of story from the text, you know, where the Buddha comes across this fellow standing on one leg in the forest. And, and, and he asks the fellow, he says, what are you doing? In. He says, I'm working out my karma. And the Buddha says, well, you know, how far along are you? <laughs> uh, 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 and the guy says, I don't know. You know. And the Buddha says, well, how much have you got rid of? And the man says, I, I don't know. And the Buddha says, how much have you let, got left to go? He says, I don't know. And the Buddha says, well, how will you know when you're done? And, and the fellow answers, I don't know. And then, and then, of course, this is one of those stories where the Buddha goes into one of his, you know, things about, you know, you foolish man type thing, you know. So one of the orientations of practice is this working on things. And the other orientation of practice is is around cultivation. Everything I read from the text is that it is the cultivation of the liberating, the awakening, the freeing, the lovely that actually does the work of renunciation and letting go of the difficult. That it's never been me centralized in that process. And I personally think, you know, it's really, I personally think it's so helpful to actually really examine our orientations because it affects everything. It doesn't mean that the cultivation of the awakening and the healing of the lovely doesn't require great effort and great sincerity and great dedication, of course it does. But where do you think is the most joy? In which orientation do you have a sense is the most joy in the practice? I mean, personally, I would dread the thought you know, of waking up in the morning thinking, another day working on that anger. I've got a lifetime ahead. <laughs> I don't even know how we make it to a cushion. So I really encourage you to look at your, your orientation because it, it's really the Buddha speaks so much of the cultivation of the lovely qualities of heart and mind that really free us inwardly of the compulsions of self-abandonment and that allow us to really rest within our being with an inner collectedness, an expression of an inner commitment to being fully awake to what is, the foundation of all insight and understanding. Cultivating the inner stillness, the sensitivity, the receptivity possible for us. Cultivating the non-distracted mind these are all disciplines of kindness. But we see it does take effort. It's not easy for us to swim against the tide of habit and fragmentation that leads us to be so lost in, in, in thought, in fantasy, in memory, in rehearsal. To, be, to learn, it takes great sincerity and commitment to learn to be still and present amidst the 10,000 Thoughts of a single day and the waterfall of sensory impressions that flood our sense doors, it's so easy to become forgetful. In the in, in Tibetan cosmology, um, you know, which is always very detailed, um, it, it speaks about the realms of the gods, you know, who enjoy this kind of ongoing health and comfort and entertainment and wealth and uh, this realm of beings who spend their lives in pleasant diversions with never any idea of practicing the Dharma or inner freedom. And then having spent their whole lives in this distractedness, they're suddenly confronted with the possibility of their death. And it said the primary suffering of, the, of this realm of beings is their own forgetfulness and heedlessness. And it is true, it is easy for us to practice and to live in a way that does not serve us well. It does seem indeed true that it's much more difficult and challenging to practice and live in a way that liberates our hearts and that serves us well. Yet, this is what we're learning to do here. We're learning to calm the distractedness. It's a training for our lives. So often when the Buddha began to speak about meditation, he would begin with those simple instructions, you know, to disentangle from the world and to establish oneself in mindfulness and in solitude. And clearly, this is not about pushing the world away. But a lot of it, and this is really a training here and for our lives, is about wise use of our sense doors, including the sense door of our mind, because we see how how easily it, we become entangled. You know, we want the world to excite us. We want the world to entertain us. We want the world to gratify us and to provide for us at times a quality of aliveness that we may feel is absent inwardly. So we keep looking at the world around us to deliver the sense of wakefulness, and then we become entangled. And The Buddha was very, very clear about wise use of the sense doors, <coughs> including the sense door of the mind. So he says, not grasping at the sense impression or the associations with it. Sounds, sights, sensations, taste, touch, smells, they all come and will come through our lives. This is a sense impression, but we surround them with so much, don't we? This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is pleasant. I want this, I don't want this, with memory. And then, of course, we, we're we gone again. Yeah. In the Tibetan tradition, it says, you know, preoccupations never end until we die. But they end in the moment that we put them down. This is their nature. <coughs> I think solitude really rests upon that willingness to let go of that kind of pursuit, almost, of entanglement. Patro no one said, In this perfect secluded place, a mountain hermitage, everything one does is good. The mountain hermitage is not geographical. <laughs> In a, it is, our mountain hermitage it is, is that, that refuge of wakefulness, of solitude, of mindfulness. This is where sensitivity arises from. And so that's, that kind of refuge, that resting inwardly, is where receptivity, appreciation, compassion, love arise from the stillness and they lead back to stillness. We can be in this world both inwardly and outwardly where there is so much and yet we can learn to be in that world without being governed by what we want from that world and what we don't want from that world. Not governed by those compulsions of need and lack and insufficiency. And then we can be generous in the world. Generous with our attention, with our compassion. Again and again I I do think we need to remind ourselves that perfection has never been the goal in this path. Compassion is, understanding is. And being at ease in solitude, I think we're we're actually asked to find compassion for the imperfect and tolerance for discomfort. Because without these, those tendencies towards flight and abandonment become one of the pressing features of our lives and expresses itself so much in aversion. The aversion that comes in the forms of blame and shame and judgment, this is so, so often what leads us to flee. Time's aversion manifests in the striving and in the tension to become, to reach some ideal experience, some ideal image of who or how we should be. And if we really look very carefully, I think, at our day, we really do get a sense of how aversion is almost always the proximate cause of disconnection. I don't want to be with this. I can't be with this. I don't want this we're gone. Hmm? We go somewhere else. And I think it's it's deeply unfortunate, I think, that women for centuries have been pretty much force-fed images and ideals of perfection. And what is it in the service of? You know, we do see perfection as somehow being the ticket to respect and to love and to accept, acceptance. And it's a pretty toxic diet. You know, because it is a diet that's constantly leading us to look outwardly for reassurance and for approval. A solitude is a very direct antidote to the patterns of forsaking ourselves. And it's counterintuitive. And I mentioned this this morning. It seems so counterintuitive when the Buddha says, in the midst of all of this agitation, be still. Find refuge in stillness. We sit and we walk with ourselves here, and sometimes we glimpse moments of real loveliness of kindness, of sensitivity, of care. And times we really do meet the unlovely. And true solitude in this path is in our commitment and our willingness to meet both equally and to explore our relationship with discomfort and with the imperfect and learn to embrace them with compassion rather than with doubt or with aversion, we perhaps do begin to see the ways in which our relationship with discomfort and imperfection comes to define who we believe ourselves to be and how we live our lives. If we fear or we disdain imperfection and discomfort, we might seek to become invisible, fearing judgment and blame, or we might launch ourselves into a life of striving and becoming, proving ourselves. I think a life lived in reaction to discomfort and, and imperfection becomes a very defended and anxious life. So, solitude is something that asks us to really develop this capacity to stand in the midst, in the middle of all things. And we're learning to do that here, aren't we? You know, when something arises that's a bit uncomfortable, you know, you you generally don't hear from teachers, well, you know, just, you know, find something else to do. You know, it's not generally the message you, you get. You know, generally you get the encouragement. Let's learn to stand in the middle of this, not in an enduring way. You know, n- not in some sort of you know gritted teeth fashion, but actually in a fashion of learning about equanimity, learning about non-identification, learning again and again that we simply cannot define ourselves by the contents of our experience, whether lovely or unlovely. You cannot define yourself by the contents of your mind. You cannot define yourself by the content of a single sitting or a single walking. We're learning it again and again, not to form an I, not to form a self-image, out of identifying with passing, the passing winds of thoughts, emotions, events. And in this, solitude is really a commitment of courage. To be really, as, as the traditions often refer to it, to be like the mountain that really gets touched by all the elements, gets touched by all the winds, but remains unshakable. Is this something to really honestly explore in our own practice, that tendency to define ourselves by the contents of our mind? Hmm? And actually how that very identification really makes the unlovely hang around? Isn't that interesting? You want to make sure you have a continuity of the unlovely? Just identify with it. (laughs) Hmm? It's kind of like writing our own ticket of dukkha. See how we meet the unpleasant and the uncomfortable. See how quickly we might move towards abandonment and flight and see what it is to be steady, to practice not endurance but patience and compassion and care, developing that, that capacity really for resilience, to be steady amidst all things. Compassion has a very different relationship with the imperfect. Compassion really knows the imperfect as suffering, not as fault, not as blame, not as something to be shamed. It's really like one of the qualities of of Kuan Yin, the representation, the deity of compassion, like the willow branch that can bend before the winds and storms but not be broken. And com- there's a lot of humility, I think, in that compassion, in embracing solitude. I think it's the humility of, of really deeply coming to know that, that, you know, we are not exempt, none of us, from the myriad of afflictions that are part of every human life. And compassion really comes to know loss and grief and pain not as failures not as something to flee from, but something that reminds us of the way that we're part of the family of all beings and, and what always merits compassion. Solitude has a nature of calm abiding. We see that solitude is only lovely when we are at peace with ourselves, After the Buddha would invite students to take their seat in an empty hut or beneath the branches of a tree, following the instructions to establish themselves in mindfulness and in solitude, in a present moment recollection, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the next instructions are breathing in, calming the formations, breathing out, Calming the formations. Now, of course, for most people, this makes no sense at all. The formations are everything that is agitated. Everything that is agitated. Everything that is agitated in the mind, everything that is agitated in the body. Breathing in, calming the agitations, breathing out. Calming the agitations in this sense, you know, you really have a, a sense of the way it, it's not about centralizing the breath as something in itself, it's bringing in this intentionality of cultivating the calmness that brings the agitations to rest. And there can be a lot of them, there can be a lot of agitations, in you know. All of the turmoils, the busyness of our thoughts and our planning and our memories and our rehearsing and our our arranging and our strategies and our judgments and our blame. There can be a lot of agitations. And yet we breathe in, calming the agitations. We breathe out, calming the agitations, knowing that whatever we feed will grow. And perhaps, and perhaps we might even become a little bit just disenchanted with the worlds that are constructed on the basis of those agitations. The wonderful self, the terrible self, you know, the wonderful life, the failed life, you know, the the fantasies, we might even get a little disenchanted. We learn to cultivate a natural, calm, abiding in the midst of all things. It's a kind of a letting go of that world of pursuit and avoidance of wanting and not wanting. And we begin in that to get a taste of stillness. Not the absence of aliveness, not the absence of life, but the freedom of a heart unbound love of solitude rests upon many things. It also rests upon you know, what is often initially encouraged in a retreats, a, a, a love of contentment. You know, it's the first teaching offered to those entering the homeless life to be content with whatever food or whatever clothing, whatever accommodation is offered. It's a teaching, I think, that's very powerful for us, non-monastics. It's a teaching about not leaning, about not depending, not looking outside of ourselves for the sources of joy or happiness or freedom. It's a teaching of being a light unto ourselves, of being an island unto ourselves. The Buddha recognized how very, very difficult life can be and how very, very difficult and challenging many of the conditions of our lives can be. But he also recognized you know, that the path of freedom really lies in cultivating those sources of joy inwardly, and those sources of freedom inwardly, rather than searching the world to provide something It is simply not able to do. Could you imagine what it is like if someone in your life came to you and looked you in the eye and said, make me happy? How would you feel about that? Yeah, great, you know, I'm really up for that. Most of us would actually feel that as an impossibility, wouldn't we? And yet how often in our lives we we look outwardly to the world and we say, make me happy. And there's something, I think, very profound in this path where we really are taking up that invitation to, to acknowledge the potentiality of our own hearts and to acknowledge the potentiality of our own minds for remarkable clarity, for remarkable depth, for remarkable and profound wakefulness and compassion and connectedness. And we are encouraged to do that through learning the lessons from our lives, the lessons of the wisdom of being disappointed when we have done just that, have turned outwardly and said, make me happy. We learn with loving non with learning to love contentment, with learning to love wakefulness and stillness. We learn actually what it really is to be a refuge to ourselves. And in being a refuge to ourselves in some very profound way, I think we learn to be a refuge for all beings. In solitude is loving the potentiality of our hearts and minds to know a genuine inner freedom and to nurture the trust in that potentiality. If we take just a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period... (coughs) Thank you for your attention. So we have a walking period now until 8.15 and we'll be coming back. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.